0: Heavenly Father, I appeal to you, Father, in this evening for you to be working in our hearts tonight through the word of God, through what you've provided for us here. I pray, Father, that you will uh, to men or women in this room, or wherever they may be, on matters of their own walk, of what they experience as they walk with you, Father, so that we'll see some things here tonight, that there'll be opportunities in what we learn tonight and begin to prepare our hearts in courage and in humility so that we'll make changes. We'll do the things we need to do. Father, we want to learn from a man like David who turned when he had the opportunity so that we might be able to do the same. And we want to understand, Father, how you work with us, how you show your grace and mercy even in the midst of difficult times, and we want to respond in the right way to that as well. So we ask for that insight. And anything else you care to provide tonight by your Spirit, we receive all and we are expecting to uh, be given something, Father, and we're ready to receive it. We thank this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just alluded to in the prayer, David's uh, fall into sin with Bathsheba and his unwillingness to repent over that sin for at least some period of time led him into the place where God had to deal with that sin for him. And the process, you remember last week we looked at this, the process began with David Uh, having his sin revealed by the prophet Nathan, who was then told by God this is going on. And he had to go to David and confront him over it. And to his credit, David immediately confessed, he immediately repented, which is fairly characteristic of David's heart overall. He was a sinful man, yeah, but uh, his desire to do better than that, Uh, even after he did fall to try to recover from that and to come back quickly to the Lord, that was perhaps one of his greatest qualities as a man. If we cataloged all of David's positive traits, all his godly qualities, I think his humility in repentance is perhaps the most admirable quality that David had. And that's why this section that we're in now is so valuable, this section on David's failings, which we started a few lessons ago. It's not just looking at what David did wrong. It's an examination of how David responded well to those failures. And in this example, the one we're finishing up today, David committed a very serious sin. Perhaps the, the most serious sins a person can commit in the case of adultery and murder. Uh, and initially, for several years, he tried to hide it. And you can look at that delay as God being gracious to David giving him opportunity to do the right thing. And we have to wonder, in fact, what would have happened had David confessed on his own at some point during that time? Would his son have lived? I don't know. We can't know because David didn't take that path. Instead, it fell to the Lord to expose him, to bring consequences against David as discipline so that the Lord then could protect his name, he said, among the nations. Remember last week we learned that the Lord said that he had to do what he did with David's son because the world, uh, Israel's enemies, as he said, needed to understand that David's sin resulted in serious consequences so that they could never turn around and say that the God of Israel approved of such kinds of things, that you know, Israel was supposed to be a light to the world, and that means they have to be a representative of God's righteous ways. And so when the leader of God's people behave in ways that are more consistent with the pagan nations around them, God's got to act to do something and distance himself from that if you will and demonstrate his displeasure with that. That's what Nathan said to David last week in 2nd Samuel 12:14. He said, "However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die." Nevertheless, the Lord showed grace to David. At least in one small way, and among others, he he delayed that child's death for a week, which gave David time with the child. I mean, have you ever thought about that for a second? What would you do if God told you you had one more week with your spouse, one more week with your child? Beyond the the trauma of knowing that, yes, you'd have a week. You'd have a week. Things that need to be said, things that need to be discussed, things that need to be shared, things that need to be reconciled. You have a week. Better, I would argue, than no time at all. And David uses that time to plead with God. In the end, the Lord did as he declared he would do. He took the child home, but in the process, David learned a valuable lesson. And as he ended his pleading and his mourning, knowing that now the decision of the Lord was evident, he accepted the discipline of the Lord with humility and he moved on. In fact, he went directly from the child's bedside to worshiping the Lord, which is a, a very dramatic or, or visible way to see his humble heart accepting the discipline of God. Really, it's a sign that he is acknowledging his own culpability in the circumstances that brought about the child's death, as opposed to, say, someone who would rail against God for his unfairness. No, I think the the evidence here is that David understood it's my fault, not God's fault. In fact, when David wrote about this, as we looked last week, in the Psalms, look what David said, Psalm 51.3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So David said in his psalm that he knew that God was a God of righteous judgment and therefore he has to be blameless with whatever he does. And at the same time, God is also a God of grace and a God of mercy. And those two sides of God That he is just and he holds us accountable to the extent that he chooses in that justice. But at the same time, he is merciful and he is full of grace for us. Those two sides of God work hand in hand. And sometimes he applies both on us in exactly the same set of circumstances, bringing both judgment, or we would say discipline, even as he is also bringing us grace and mercy. So as God was disciplining David for his sin, the Lord was also preparing to bless David for his humility in repentance. And I would submit to you that that pattern of God will confuse us time and time again, since we are commonly expecting only one or the other from any authority, God or our boss or anyone that is over us. We never expect them to do both things at the same time. We, we anticipate that if we do good, we're going to get rewarded. And when we do bad things, we assume we're going to get punished. But you don't understand things when you get both at the same time. And God's ways are not man's ways. He often does both at the same time. And in 2 Samuel 12, 24, we move now into that part of the story. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her, and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. So let's just talk how this goes first. You have David comforting his wife in sorrow. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? It's her son too, and it's her loss as well. You know, there had to have been a difficult conversation between David and Bathsheba. I mean, he. He's obvi- David's obviously fully repentant at this point, but we don't know where the wife was. You know, Does she blame God for her son's death? Is she like Moses' wife? You are a bridegroom of blood to me and throws the foreskin, if you know the story in Exodus chapter four. I mean, is that her attitude? Or was she willing to acknowledge her own culpability as someone who engaged in adultery? Has she forgiven David for killing Uriah? You know, sometimes the hardest step in accepting God's discipline with humility is helping others in your life accept it with you. And as David is trying to comfort Bathsheba, they conceive again, it says. And the new son is born probably around 991 B.C. And David names this boy Solomon. Now, the name Solomon comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means fullness or completeness, but you know it's commonly used as peace, right? Shalom means peace, but it's because in the Jewish concept of things, to be whole or complete is where you find peace. And so the idea is he is a complete or peace for, for David. And that name is probably reflecting a couple of things. David's peace with God, having been reconciled, restored from his sin, Solomon being a bit of a, a symbol of that. And then secondly, Solomon's time ruling Israel is a time of because Solomon rules over a kingdom that is largely absent any external threats. Curiously, you have the prophet Nathan choosing to give this boy another name, Jedediah, means beloved of Yahweh or beloved of God. And it says Nathan assigns uh, Solomon this additional name for the Lord's sake, it said there in verse 25, meaning he's honoring the Lord for his work in David's life through all of what just transpired with Bathsheba. Now, Jedediah was a pet name. That is, it's, it's Nathan's pet name for uh, Solomon. It, it's a name that's never used again. This is the only verse in the Bible in which it appears. So it's not a name that Solomon was carrying very often, only when Nathan saw him. And I'd imagine every time Nathan said it, Solomon rolled his eyes and said, I'm not Sanadiah. Anyway, now clearly, as you see this transpire, you see the grace of God in David's life. He gives David another son. I mean, it's almost as if this son is the replacement for the one that he just lost, now, when you think about it for a moment, every child is the result of a conscious, purposeful decision by God to bring a new life into existence through some couple. It's never by chance, and it's not because you decided to have sex with somebody. It's because God chose to use that to bring about a life according to his purpose. And of course, this child's no different. The Lord has chosen to bless David and Bathsheba with this son. So it's not a coincidence. It's not just natural process. It's God saying, here you go, David. David. And therefore, this son is the evidence of it by itself that the Lord is still willing to bless David. And as you move on in this story, you'll see further evidence of God's sovereign purpose in all of this. As God foretold one day to David earlier, he would have this son. That is to say, even before Bathsheba ha- and, and David's sin came to, to, to be known, or at least let's put it this way, even before um, David had the son, had the conception of the new son, he knew he was going to get one. Because in 1 Chronicles 22, when David is later in his life telling Solomon that, Solomon, you will be the king, he tells Solomon a story about how he knew that. In 1 Chronicles 22:7, 7, David said to Solomon, "'My son, I have intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying,' "'You have shed much blood and have waged great wars, "'and you shall not build a house to my name "'because you have shed so much blood "'on the earth before me. "'Behold, a son will be born to you "'who will be a man of rest, "'and I will give him rest from all his enemies "'on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, "'and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. "'He shall build a house for my name, "'and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, "'and I will establish the throne of his kingdom "'over Israel forever.'" So at this point, before Solomon's conception, at some point, the Lord revealed his plan to David to give him a son. And he said, that's gonna be the son who's gonna build my house. Now, this moment I just read from First Chronicles 22, this moment probably happened early in David's life, probably after the death of his first son, the one that was taken because of Bathsheba. So somewhere after that son died, God appears to David and comforts him with the knowledge that he will have another son. And he says that when you do, name him Solomon, he'll build my house. Now, you remember the earlier moment in chapter 7, in which David is late in his life? We know because it says there in that chapter, all his enemies have been conquered at that point. So, late in his life, remember in chapter 7, he's contemplating building a house for God. right? The events of that chapter, chapter 7, happen near the end of David's life, and at that point, Solomon's already alive. In fact, Solomon's getting ready to take control, right? So what that tells us is, apparently, late in his life, David returned to the thought of building a house for God, maybe because he was a little self-conscious living in that palace and was starting to think that it was just something he should do, right? So at that later time, David is told by God, almost as if to say, didn't we already have this conversation? I told you, we're not gonna have you build the house. I have a future descendant coming. And by the way, this future descendant's gonna build a permanent house with a permanent kingdom, and it's gonna be a great thing. We call it the Davidic covenant. And he was speaking of Jesus in the coming kingdom and the temple of that day, okay? So what we now understand is, before Solomon was born, God said, I'm going to raise you up a son called Solomon. He'll build my house. And then late in David's life, when he tries a second time, to think about building a house, God comes a second time and says, I'm not gonna let you build a house, and that's when God tells him about the greater uh, son who is coming in the future with the Davidic covenant. Okay, so we have the first one giving the Solomon, the second one giving the picture of Christ, and either way, David is not gonna build the temple. (laughs) God is clear about that. So the point here is, David knew Solomon was gonna be born before Bathsheba conceived him, after his other son had died. And what you're learning in this is the sovereignty of God in all that happened through him and Bathsheba. At the end of verse 24 in 2 Samuel here, the writer says, the Lord loved Solomon. You see that? And that is an important statement. It has great meaning, far beyond what you may assume. This is one of those times in the Bible when the Lord is using the word love to mean choose, choose. Choose. The most famous example of that is in Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, speaking to Israel, but you say, How have you loved us? And his answer is, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So the Lord told Israel that he has loved them. And then the Lord says, sort of in a dialogue, as if he was them as well as himself, he says, and you will ask me, how do I love you? And the reason he's saying that is because at the time of Malachi, the nation of Israel was still recovering from years spent in exile when God sent them into Babylon as discipline for violating the law of the covenant. And so the Lord is knowing this, that the people are sitting there in a difficult situation and they're questioning God's love for them because of all that they've gone through, kind of like what your four-year-old or five-year-old does when you punish them and they're in their room crying and they're saying, mommy doesn't love me anymore, right? That's what God is saying to Israel through Malachi. And so he says, you wanna know how I can show you that I love you? You wanna see evidence of how I love you? He says, I chose you to be my people, to be my chosen people. The Lord points back to the moment at the very outset of that, when he chose one son of Isaac over the other son of Isaac. He chose Jacob, he did not choose Esau. And the fact that the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel is proof to Israel that God was intending, through that choice, to bring a nation that would be his. His point to Israel is, if I didn't want you, I wouldn't have done that. My choice is my evidence to you that I loved you from the very beginning and put you in a covenant with me. Now, notice at the same time, though, he says, I hated Esau, which is to say I did not choose him. Those are essentially the same statement. Esau's descendants, he says, have no such future like you do. They have no such blessing like you will. They are Their inheritance is jackals in the wilderness. They don't have the promised land, much less the eternal version of that, the kingdom that is coming for them. And from that passage in Malachi, you just understand that to be chosen by God is to be loved by God. To be passed over by God is to be hated by God. Now, this is not to say love and hate in terms of an emotional response. That's our way of using the words. That's not the way God is using the words. He is not acting in emotion. He's acting as a sovereign God making a choice, but he's saying the effect of that outcome is to display love or not to display love. Later in Romans, Paul points us back to this text in Malachi when he's teaching that all who descend from Abraham are not God's chosen people, but only those that God has appointed to be. And he says this in Romans 9.10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, the mother of Esau and Jacob, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So Paul draws from Malachi 9 and uses the same phraseology, love, hated, so on, to indicate God chose Jacob, he did not choose Esau, period. And that makes perfect sense, by the way, that a God would make a choice, doesn't that? That God is in the business of choosing things because he has the power to do so. God chooses who he will show his love to, and in that sense, not to be chosen is not to be loved, or as I said, we would say, hated. And Paul even emphasizes in his use of this example that that choice was being made while the sons were in the womb, so as to nullify any attempt by anyone to say that that choice was the result of something the boys did. By making the choice before they're born, God nullifies any attempt to kind of read back into the text something that they must have done to cause God to do what he did. No, God is the cause of this outcome. He is not responding to anything. It is a choice of God, not a response of God. All right? So in that way, God makes choices. He does it all the time. It's what it means to call him sovereign. You can't say God is sovereign and then rule out some little corner of the world and say, oh, but he doesn't control this. Ergo, he's no longer sovereign. Something else is. All right? All right. He has authority over everyone and everything at all times to all outcomes, period, all right? Knowing that, and I gave you all of that as background, knowing that you come back to 2 Samuel 12 and you find God saying that he loves Solomon and now we understand it means God chose Solomon. Now I had um, one slide on Romans 9 to show you the text but I didn't use it because I was too... uh, I had a head of steam there and I wasn't willing to stop long enough to push a button. Anyway, that's the text we just read from Romans 9 and you can see the words highlighted at the bottom that he took from Malachi. All right, we'll hold there for a second. Now, what I wanna show you is why it was so important that he chose Solomon and why it's written here. Uh, We heard already from David in 1 Chronicles 22 that God appeared to him and spoke to him and said, I'm gonna give you a son, and when he's born, you're gonna name him Solomon, and I'm gonna have him build my house. Remember that? All right, so God has already expressed that to David. And now what you're seeing this writer say in 2 Samuel 12, when he says God loved Solomon, is you're seeing the writer say to you and I, this is the one God has chosen to follow David in the line of succession of kings. And he had to tell you that because this is not the expected choice. And let me show you why. Normally, the oldest son of the king would be expected to inherit the throne at the death of the father. And here's David's, uh, most of David's family tree. Uh, David's firstborn son was Amnon to Ahinanom. And Solomon is the seventhborn son. Uh, And he's so far down the pecking order there's other sons missing here. By the way, the thirdborn son is mentioned once and never mentioned again. We don't know if he died young. We don't know what. But I didn't try to give everybody, all his sons and daughters. I'm just putting up key ones here. But the point is, Solomon is so far down the pecking order that if you were thinking in man's terms, you would never assume he would be the son being put on the throne. But what the writer's telling us here is, he will be, because God chose him to be. He will be David's successor, which is ironic in a way, because David was the last one in line in his family to be seen as anything, Right? And when Samuel picked him, he, he was still out in the field. He had to ask, do you have any more sons? Because he didn't find the one he was looking for. So it is uh, God's choice here, that he loves Solomon, so to speak, that will supersede anything that the man, that mankind will think should, should determine David's successor. And it is notable that David's successor will come from the woman that David took through adultery and murder. Isn't that interesting? It's also notable that this son Solomon is going to be uniquely wise, uniquely powerful in all the history of Israel. In fact, of all the history of mankind, the Bible says no one was wiser than Solomon. No one was richer, save Christ himself. Those details, the fact that God takes what David does through Bathsheba and turns it to what he does through Solomon, that is proof you cannot sin your way out of the grace of God nor does your sin separate you from the love of God. Most of us were raised to think that bad people should get bad outcomes and good people should get good outcomes. The problem from God's perspective with that thinking is you're all bad. You're all bad all the time. You're, you're, there is, as Romans 3 says, there is no one who does good, no, not one. Right? So therefore, if that rule, as I expressed it, was the way it actually worked, the only way God ever could give anything good to anyone is only if he does it by his grace. That is unmerited. Because you'll never merit it, right? When you understand that, when you understand how you're seen from God's point of view in that respect. Now, I'm I'm not to put something else on the table here. Obviously, with faith in Christ, you are now the recipient of his righteousness, and that's what God sees in you. Understand that. But I'm saying... As we think about how our actions are going to influence God's response, that formula is the way we typically think about it. I better do good things here today or God is gonna spank me today in some sense, right? What I said at the outset of tonight, though, is the point for tonight. Even as he will discipline you, he will still bring you grace, and if you use that simple kind of cause and effect relationship to guide your thinking of God, you will be confused utterly all the time. Because when you're doing the, quote, good things, and bad things are happening, you'll wonder, where is God? And when you're doing the bad things, and you're expecting your world to come down on you, and then God gives you some blessing, you'll be like, why did he do that? <laughs> right? When you understand this, you can, you can only make sense of, of, of God understanding that his only option is to give you grace, right? That's, anytime he wants to give you something good, it will have to be by grace, because you'll never deserve it. And knowing that, you can make sense now of why God would put one son to death as discipline and give him another son as grace out of the same set of circumstances. He's not rewarding David's bad behavior. He is showing David grace, unmerited favor. And both acts are good. And this is the new, the other insight I don't want you to miss tonight. Both things were good for David. Because God disciplines us as a blessing. Discipline is a blessing, right? So everything that comes from God is good, the Father of lights, James says. Everything that comes from him is good. So the death of that son was good as discipline is good for what it achieves in the heart of the individual who receives it, right? And the blessing of a son to replace him is good for how it encourages the heart to move forward and know that God is a God of grace, God used David's greatest sin, arguably, ultimately to produce David's greatest blessing, his son Solomon. And in grace, God granted David another son through Bathsheba, assigning that son the role of earthly prominence, of spiritual significance, of great you know, wisdom and, and riches. And all of that, I think, is a wonderful example of Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter three when he says, to, verse 20, verse 20, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory. That, that is a concise way to understand how God works far more than anything you can imagine. And here's the thing, the way he'll get you to somewhere good is either through blessing or discipline because in reality, it's all a blessing. God does this for all his children. He blesses us when we sin and he does it in a variety of ways. And sometimes, uh, even if we aren't willing to repent, even if we don't repent, he still comes along and blesses us at times. I mean, it's, it, it, the formula will never work if you don't understand how grace works. It, it, if you expect discipline when you sin and blessing when you don't, that might be mostly true. But it's not a rule, and it doesn't predict God's behavior. And in any case, The moment you think you're getting in trouble for doing something bad and you think it's all all a, a, a bad thing, that's good. That's God disciplining you, which is good. I mean, it's all good. That attitude changes how you receive what God brings you. He turns all circumstances to good and he will mix discipline and other forms of, quote, blessing at the same time just to make sure that you understand this isn't some kind of quid pro quo relationship where you're in control of what God does. Interestingly, the son that was taken from David and Bathsheba could never have received the blessings that Solomon received. Do you know why? Had he lived? Had he been the one instead of Solomon, let's say? Had he been in the position to receive what Solomon received instead? That son was conceived out of wedlock, and as such, he was a bastard son, and as such, he could not have been king of Israel, because Deuteronomy 23.2 says, "'No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord.'" So in removing that son to provide the new one, God has actually made possible what David would have wanted but couldn't have had. And in addition to blessing David with the new son, the Lord also continues to bless David and the nation in warfare, that is, in defeating their enemies, and particularly the Ammonites, which is where this story began, if you remember. And so that's the last section, verse 26. Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it or I'll capture the city myself and I'll be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, fought against it and captured it. And then he took the crown of their king from his head and its weight was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and sent them under saws, sharp iron instruments and iron axes and made them pass through the brick kiln and thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So this war against the Ammonites has been raging on and off now for some time because if you go all the way back to the beginning of this story where Uriah was killed in one of these battles, you've now had... The time for David to hide the sin and that son to grow some number of years and then that son was killed and then now Solomon has been born and so on. So the war has been raging on and off for a time. Remember, uh, th- these uh, enemies of Israel, the Ammonites, they're one of the more severe of those that have vexed Israel for centuries. So they're the ones, they're kind of their arch enemy. They're the ones they've been trying to defeat, almost as, in some ways equal to the Philistines. They're just on the o- opposite side of the nation. And it would seem When you see the outcome now, when they're finally defeated, it would seem as though the Lord has left Israel's victory over the Ammonites out of reach for as long as David hid his sin. Once the sin was exposed, once David repented, then the Lord was ready to move the plan forward with the Ammonite battle and Israel's victory. Here again, as you've heard me say, as David goes, so goes the nation of Israel. So not only is David moving back personally to a place of blessing with God, but so is the nation. And I think that's what the author of Second Samuel is trying to tell you here as he puts these bookends around the story of David and Bathsheba. The war is going well, and then nothing about the war for a while. And then all the, the stuff with David and Bathsheba, and then that's finished. And then, oh, now the war is ready to start again. And he shows it being finished at that point. The connection being this. David's restoration then allowed the Lord to bring about the Ammonite defeat. And the story starts with a summary statement in verse 26. I'm just gonna put up a little picture again just to give you some idea of what we're talking about. Verse 26, we're told Joab captures the Ammonite's royal city, their capital city, Rabbah. And then from verse 27 onward, you kinda get the story of how all of that happened, all right? So the first one's sort of an overview statement. And it begins with Joab sending word to David saying, uh, I've got them right where I want them. He says he's captured the city of waters, which is a way of saying he's captured their water supply. And Rabah, by the way, if you can't see, it's right here, just inside the territory of Ammon. And he now, I mean, when you take the water away from a city that's walled in, they aren't, <laughs> that's days. That's, that's about all they have. They may have some water inside, but they don't have a ton. So they're not gonna last a long time on that. So it's only a matter of time before the city has to surrender or die. And then either way, David has victory. So Joab wryly makes that little comment to David saying, you better hurry up and get over here, otherwise I'm naming this town after myself after I get in there. So David sends his entire army of men to this battle and with the extra manpower, they take Rabbah. And part of the spoil is the crown of the king of the Ammonites. And it says it weighs a talent of gold. Now, a talent is 75 pounds, So it's very unlikely that that king, or David for that matter, ever really wore this crown. I mean, it's too heavy to even rest on your head. So it's like a couple of bags of cement on your head. That's what we're talking about here. So it's a symbol of power, and it must have been held up by a couple of people on his head just long enough to make the point. And uh, the imagery is powerful, right? David victorious over perhaps Israel's most dangerous enemy, historically speaking. And as a result, he gains more power and riches beyond belief. The spoil of this battle is brought to Jerusalem in great amounts, it says in verse 30. And the people living in all the cities of Ammon were enslaved. That's what all that reference to the brick kiln and the axes and all that. They're all made to work for Israel. So you suddenly get free labor. You suddenly get tremendous spoil from the wealth. You gain control of the land. You no longer have to put resources into fighting an enemy. It's just a huge lift on the economy of the nation. And never mind the peace that it brings, this, this security on that side of the border. And if you're feeling sorry for the Ammonites, go back and read the Old Testament a little more and the centuries of tormenting that they did to Israel. This, this is fair turnaround. So the story of David's victory over the Ammonites is one of these bookends, as I said. And I love the message that comes out of this for, for all of God's people. That is, how your walk with the Lord can get sidetracked and how that turns into opportunity for God. In my experience, I think the scriptures would back this up, even this story. The Lord's work in your life will proceed on some pace until you get sidetracked into sin. Now, what I mean by a pace is, you'll see the movement in your life in spiritual terms that you would have expected. You will see the growth in your children and in your spouse. You will see the resolution of conflict or the the moving away from addiction or other issues in your life that have been there. And You'll see the moving of your life in a positive direction. And that's God working as you work in his will, as you move in a process he directs, right? And then you get sidetracked. And, you know, thinking of Luke chapter 8, the riches and cares and pleasures of the world cause the plant to stop producing fruit, right? Something doesn't have to be a sin per se. Maybe it's just too much time at work, or maybe it's just too little time at church, or maybe it's something of some combination of these things. Whatever it is that gets you in the world, in worldliness in general, and moves you away from an abiding, you know, John chapter 15, an abiding walk with Christ, And then, at that moment, your walk and your progress and all of those things that were moving well in your life will just pause. They don't necessarily go backward, although I think that's also a risk. But at very least, they pause. Everything just pauses because God is going to change His focus in your life for a while. There will still be progress and there will still be movement, but it will be very different. You will no longer be moving in the ways you were once before. He will start moving inside you. That is to say, we tend to see spiritual progress only in terms of big changes happening in our life, things that are accomplished around us or through us so that we can point to and talk about with other people. But in Scripture, we see clearly that God is a lot more interested in the spiritual progress that happens inside us, right? It's not about how you're happy. It's about how you're holy. And that's what those pauses allow God time to work on. When he recognizes that our walk has ventured off into some place it shouldn't be, and he will just pause a lot of that other good movement that we perceived as a really strong walk with God, he'll just stop for a while, and all of a sudden it's all about you and your thing and stuff and unresolved things. I mean, it's just like what happened with David. There was the waiting, No winning the Ammonite war there. Just waiting, waiting, nothing, nothing. Okay, David, let me bring in Nathan. Nathan steps in. David, here's what I hear happened. And then there's more trauma and turmoil and trial. And then finally some resolution. And then David's repentant. And then there's the son Solomon. And then God's like, all right, I'm glad we got to an understanding on this. Let's go beat those Ammonites. And then we move back to where we left off. If you're not making progress in the plans or the goals or let's call it ministry, that you once saw or anticipated that you would see, it might be because the Lord is busy attending to something inside you that matters more to him than those goals do. And maybe it's sin, and so he's waiting for repentance. Put away the sin. Maybe it's uh, a change in lifestyle. Maybe it's a change in goals or focus. Maybe it's uh, patterns of life that need to be reevaluated. Maybe it's selfishness. (laughs) Maybe it's, uh, you know, you know what it is. Whatever it is, learn the lesson, deal with it, and then he'll open new doors for that next spiritual adventure and you'll start moving again. I don't know how many times he'll do it in any one life. I don't know how long those periods will be. That's all up in, to, to you and him and how those things work out. I'm just telling you I've seen the pattern. I've seen it. Everyone sees it. You can't avoid it because you're not good enough inside <laughs> to, to avoid it. There's always something he wants to work out. But I think he uses that progress, pause, progress model, both because it is effective at causing us to ask the questions like, why are we stopping here, God? Why am I not seeing progress? Which then lead to answers like, well, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. And you're receiving something you wouldn't have been listening for if you had just been running along on your own in this progress, right? And also because the work doesn't matter to God, the heart does. He'll get the work done one way or another. The heart is the whole point of it. So the three chapters you've just studied with David and Bathsheba is a vivid example of that pattern. David's ministry, if you will, is leading Israel in the defeat of Israel's enemies and the growing prosperity that results. That's his mission. Build the, the nation, the, the kingdom of Israel in its full form to an extent. But his walk, whenever it gets sidetracked, the Lord contends with that personal issue in David's life, and all the other stuff just takes a pause. Our next section begins chapter 13, and it's the, the section that starts in this next chapter is the longest single section of any kind in the book. It runs all the way to chapter 20. It's still within the larger section of David's failings, but this is one failing, if you will. This is chapter 13 to chapter 20 unveils one key area of David's life that was a, a difficult one and caused not only David's personal failings, but also impacted the nation of Israel in a great way. However, unlike the section we just studied, the sin that's at the core of this large section, it's not obvious. It's not like, oh, he slept with Bathsheba. Oh, here we are. No, it's, it's much more subtle than that. The principal sin that's driving this section is David's choice to take multiple wives, and the consequences that arise from the rivalries and the family jealousies And then adding to that is David's sin in hesitating to implement the law of God. That is David's willingness to withhold justice. David seems to be the kind of man who really liked to please people. And there are times when he should have done something hard and he didn't want to do it. And the consequence of him having multiple families when he shouldn't have had that and unwilling to hold people accountable when he needed to according to the law Those two things worked together to create a whole chain of consequences that were so devastating for him and for the nation, all in this one section. In fact, it gets to the point where several of David's sons will die as a result, and David will be forced to vacate Jerusalem for a time uh, under an attempted coup, all of this resulting from these sins. All right, so that's a long section. We're obviously going to do it in pieces. The story today just begins with three new characters, Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. And that's chapter 13, verse one. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. All right, let me show you that family tree again. All right, so Amnon and Absalom and Tamar. So uh, those are the ones that are involved now. Uh, Absalom is David's third-born son from Machah. Machah is how you'd say it, Machah. Machah. And uh, if you ever see a C or an H anywhere close to each other in Hebrew, just act like you got something caught in your throat. (laughs) And David also had a daughter by Machah called Tamar. So David's first-born son, Amnon, was born to a different wife named Ahinoam, And technically, then, these three children of David are half-brother, half-sister, because they share the same father, but they have different mothers. But Amnon and Absalom are in their 20s, early 20s. Uh, They were born to David while he was still in Hebron, before he was even crowned king of all of Israel. But Tamar, the full sister of Absalom, she's probably in her very early teens, probably just post-puberty. And... One of the consequences of David's sin of taking multiple wives was that it produced these unnatural desires and jealousies between family members. So you have David's son Amnon, who finds his half sister Tamar attractive to the point of distraction, and he lusts for her. And he's so infatuated with her that it says he makes himself ill because he, what he's, obviously the frustration here is he sees her as a virgin, which means he, she's unmarried, she's eligible to marry. That's what he says. And yet he he can't see any way he can have her. Because under the law of Moses, a half-brother cannot take a half-sister as a wife, which is why he doesn't see any way around this problem. So he's just frustrated at the prospect of being unable to have her for himself, and he's depressed and mopey, and so you end up with this friend of his coming along, a cousin, who offers a sort of solution. He says in verse three, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, and David's brother, And Shimei was David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat from her hand. So, Jonadab is the son, you see there, of one of David's brothers, which means he is a cousin. I don't know if it's once removed, second cousin. I don't care. He's a cousin uh, of Amnon, and also, therefore, a cousin of Absalom and Tamar. And we're told he's a very shrewd man. Now, when the Bible calls someone shrewd, it's usually not a compliment. Certainly not one here. So the young man notices that his cousin Amnon is depressed day after day, and he just pushes for an explanation, and then Amnon confides in uh, Jonadab, says, I'm in love with my half-sister Tamar, and that gives Jonadab this opportunity. He sees an opportunity to advance his own political interests as it relates to the succession of the king, of of the throne after David. So he's smart, shrewd, not in a good way, not in a godly way, and Amnon seems easily influenced for the worse by this cousin. I mean, these two guys are going to be poster children for what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, bad company corrupts good morals, remember? Well, this is more like bad company corrupts bad morals, but it's just, or makes bad morals worse. But anyway, it's the same principle. Jonadab tells Amnon, let's set a trap. Here's the way it's going to work. You pretend to be sick, and then when David wants to help you, you say, oh, I don't need a servant, I want my sister. And then he'll send Tamar in to serve you food. Now, in that day, a young man and a young unmarried woman would not typically be in company together, not even if they're half-brother, half-sister. I mean, they could see each other in in family moments, but together alone was not really proper under any circumstances. So had he said something in, in, in some other way, hey, I want to see Tamar, it would have raised concerns. People would have wondered why. But Because he says he's sick, well, now he's harmless and he's in need and people lower their guard. And preparing food was exclusively the work of women. So it was a perfect excuse to get Tamar in there. Some of you are thinking, I know, it's still that way in my house. But seriously, that was the only way, that would have been a natural thing. Well, we need a woman to do this, get Tamar, he's sick. No one would have really thought much more about it than that. The question for us is why does Jonadab want to help his cousin in this way? It's because he wants to gain friendship with whoever will be David's successor. Amnon is firstborn of David. So he's the most likely, at least in human terms, from how Jonadab would have understood it, he's the most likely to succeed David. On the other hand, Tamar's brother Absalom is, as we'll see later, the strongest leader among the sons of David at this point. So being shrewd, Jonadab probably detected that. So he sees an opportunity to pit one brother against the other here. And in so doing, he's going to gain either way, no matter how this thing turns out. If Amnon becomes king, well, Amnon will remember he gave him the plan, right? Um, but by encouraging Amnon to take Tamar, he sets up Absalom to take revenge and potentially eliminate a rival. And he can play the, the situation to his advantage either way. If he's the one, for example, to tell on uh, Amnon to Absalom, he can use it to his advantage. I mean, there's, this is just putting two rivals in a position to fight it out and then he'll pick up the pieces with whatever comes out of it. So Amnon takes the advice, plan moves ahead, we'll just move quickly through the the scene, it's pretty obvious what happens. Verse six, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. And then David sent to the house for Tamar saying, go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. And she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. You see what's happening here, right? Obviously, he's gonna force himself on her. We call this rape. And it's no coincidence that one of David's sons is about to sin in a way that's quite similar to the way his father sinned. The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. The hens have come home to roost. What are the other things we could say, right? Um, David's sin with Bathsheba has consequences for the way his sons think and act toward women. And that's a basic biblical principle. In fact, I think that's just a principle of human nature. And David displays uh, some naivete here, I think, by agreeing to allow Tamar into his half-brother's bed. And you'll see why more in a minute. So... She works in this room adjacent to his bedroom, and he can see her through the doorway making bread. Now, I'm sure his eyes looking upon her, it's the thing we studied a couple weeks ago, right? Sin starts with the, uh, the lust of the eyes and then moves to consummation and the sin of our heart and so on. So by the time she walks in with the food, he's ready. And he tells all the other servants to leave, orders her to bring the food. Verse 10, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into my bedroom that I might eat from your hands. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So he just tries to get her close so he can grab her arm. He does that. They're alone in the room, and she says, you don't want to do this. Uh, you, you, you do not want to take this step because uh, she's, what she's referring to, obviously, is two things. The general violation of an un- unmarried woman and the specific sin, in this case, of incest. Now, in that day and age, there's only one thing of value that a woman had to offer her future husband. She had no property, There'd be a dowry, but that wasn't hers. Her possession was her virtue. If that was taken from her, she would find it very difficult to attract an honorable man. And for the most part, she would expect to live the rest of her life unmarried. So she asked him that, as you see, Where would I ha- how could I get rid of this reproach? Meaning this, since we can't marry, I have no solution here if you take this from me. Because I'll never marry anyone right? And that's what would often happen. If a man took a woman in this way, at least there was the possibility he might marry her. I mean, obviously not the greatest way to start a marriage, but the point is she had some source of support, some potential for someone to take her into her home, into their home. Not under these circumstances. Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-eight says, if a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged and seizes her, and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lays with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife. So the solution in scripture was if you rape somebody, you just married her, and you're gonna pay some money for the fact that you did it the way you did it. A lot of money. And it ends in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 22, and he cannot divorce her all his days. Right? This isn't some temporary thing, I marry you to get the rule and then I'm done with you, no. Forever, right? So she says, I don't have that option with you because there's another law in Leviticus that says I can't marry you because you're my half brother. And then she makes one final attempt to talk him out of it. She says, Why don't you talk to David? I'm sure he won't withhold me, which is a way of saying, David will let you marry me. Why don't you ask him first? Now, she must have certainly known David wouldn't have allowed that. It's against the law. But she's delaying, she's trying to find any way she can out of the situation. In the end, he overpowers her, he rapes her, and what he does in that process is set in motion a cascade of devastation in David's family. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you've just done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore her long-sleeved garment, which was on her, and she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So with the act done... Amnon's lust for Tamar turns to hatred. And in fact, it says the hatred was greater than the passion he felt, or as it puts it here, the love. It wouldn't have been hard for anything to be greater than the love because he had no love for her, right? This response is evidence that his attraction for her was entirely selfish, entirely self-serving, fleshly, downright demonic, right? Once his flesh obtained what it desired, he reacts with what I perceive as self-loathing. But it comes out of him as hatred, for tomorrow, And it's common, I think, to blame the object of our lust when we experience the feelings of our guilt. I loved something so much, and now look what it's done to me. And I hate it now. And it can be a thing, an object, a, a person. And his self-loathing is probably because he himself understands there are consequences here for him. Never mind her. Sexual sin is somewhat unique in this particular respect, that it causes us self-loathing in a way that is unique. It's an action that cannot be reversed, it has lasting ramifications, and your own body is one of the victims. Uh, Paul says in speaking about sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality, and the word immorality, porneia, means sexual sin. Flee sexual sin. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So immorality, sexual immorality, is demoralizing and desecrating to the human body and it has an effect on your mind and on your heart that is far greater than you realize and it builds over time and it's only later on that you realize how damaging it can be. And Amnon shows, shows that effect here immediately, throwing Tamar out of the room. Uh, she tries to salvage something, you notice that? She's like, okay, we've done this now, so at least let's see if we can find a way to marry because that's my last hope and he won't even do that and he calls for a servant to throw her out. The whole thing with the robe, the point of that is the robe concealed the evidence of what had happened. If she had been uh, had any kind of mark on her body or any blood spot or whatever that might have been there after a virgin is having her first experience of that sort, violently so, you would have expected there might have been evidence, but it's being covered up at the moment, so the, the servants don't necessarily see it in the moment. But she later tears her garments in distress, mourning loudly. Now, as she does all of that, the hysterics of it, are going to attract attention, obviously. And that leads to the next part of our story. It's just a short section and we'll finish. Verse 20. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. All right, there's a lot being said between the lines in that passage. Uh, And that's all we're going to do tonight to finish, but I want to cover that to get us out of this section. She goes back to her family home, her brother Absalom. I remember on the chart, this is the one that is her full brother. Isn't it interesting? He immediately suspects what happened. She doesn't say anything. So he knew to ask this very specific question uh, in our own words, it would be, did Abnon rape you? Well, somehow he knew his half-brother was on the hunt for this girl. And so now when she shows up torn, clothes, crying, and all the rest, he's ready to ask the question. He tells her, be silent, which is to say, he's telling her, uh, don't say anything. And in the text, it would appear as though he's trying to protect his brother, but we learn there in verse uh, 22, that's not his concern. He hates his brother, right? What he's trying to do here. Is contain this so that he can take advantage of it so in effect he's promising he will take care of the problem and of her and it says there that she stays in her brother's house what that tells you is she becomes a spinster she never marries she likely is in his house forever she he is promising I'll be the provider that you can't get now because you can't marry that's her future to be in her brother's house forever unmarried and desolate as it says. Now, you might think he's being kind and brotherly and all of this is just his compassion working here. He's just angling for something. He wants to keep the incident quiet to allow time for him to plan revenge and the reason he wants to take revenge is, is it will advance his path to the throne. He's doing exactly what Jonadab wanted to see happen. He wants to take this man out so that he's a little closer to the throne. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here is that other verse in verse 21 that I haven't mentioned yet. It says, David at some point hears of this matter and is very angry. The only way you can assume he would have known is a servant told him. The servants were around. Look, when you rape a woman, it's typically not quiet. The servants would not have been very far away behind that door. They probably knew exactly what happened behind that door. It's not a hard thing to guess. So they probably find, the news finds its way back to David, and in verse 21, he's angry. Now, what's surprising in all this is what the text doesn't say. There's no further commentary here on David's response to Amnon. Under the law of Moses, the one who does this uh, would be cut off, it says, specifically the language is to be cut off from his people, but that's typically a phrase that means to die. So David would have immediately acted against his son to keep the law by putting his son to death in defense of his own daughter, I should add, for righteousness' sake. But he does nothing, as far as we can tell. He just play, we know he doesn't do anything against Amnon, because Amnon lives two more years before this thing finally plays out. So it appears as though David just said, oh, well, I don't know if he said, well, kids will be kids, or boys will be boys, or he just didn't know what to do. But David's hesitation to merit out timely justice here is a close second to his pattern of sexual sin in terms of seriousness and the way it, 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 it vexed his, his time as king. He failed to bring justice about here, but you remember he also failed to bring justice for Joab. Joab killed Abner at the very outset of his time as king. Remember that? And Abner's now, now or Joab's now the commander of his army. He never put Joab to death, and that's going to have consequences later for Solomon. And here again, David does not deal swiftly with the sin of Amnon. And as a result of him not doing this, what will follow now is a coup and two more sons of David dying. (laughs) Now, on the one hand, it might be easy to say, well, I can get why David hesitated. I mean, how do you kill your firstborn son? But then I I would say to that, what about Tamar? I mean, is one worth more to you than the other in that respect? It would seem that his loyalties or his desire to please, his, his love to be, you know, uh, by love I'm talking, his his desire to see his family together and all loving him and his role as a provider and a, a leader, not as a disciplinarian, was his primary. All of that clouded his judgment of right and wrong. You know, love without justice leads to injustices like the one you see here. And not only did David not defend Tamar, he allows the situation to happen in the first place because if Absalom... Tamar's brother, uh, brother, if he could have known just by seeing her crying that Amnon raped her, then the word is out about Amnon. I mean, it's hard to believe that no one would have warned the king before this moment. Did you know you've got a brother, or a son rather, who's got it on for one of your daughters? That doesn't sound like that's going to end well. You know, Somewhere that's going to come up maybe that's why he didn't act against his son for raping his daughter. Because maybe he felt some of the blame was his own. Because he let Tamar go to Amnon when he asked her to. He knew that there could have been a problem with that. I don't know. There's another argument to be made that maybe he just thought he was being hypocritical if he disciplined Amnon, because Amnon's basically done what he did with Bathsheba. I mean, yeah, David didn't rape his sister, but he had a man murdered. So, I mean, which one is worse? It's it's still the thought that I've already kind of walked by the same path as my son. Who am I to say? You know how we suddenly, sometimes you hear parents saying that? I did a lot of worse things too. I can't exactly hold my kids accountable. Heck, yes, you can. God's law does not demand that you be sinless before, as an authority, you can hold someone else accountable to the law. If God waited for sinlessness before we could hold anyone accountable, who would ever be held accountable? Don't ever let anyone tell you that because your life wasn't perfect, you have no authority over your kids. You want to watch your kid get screwed up? Think like that. You'll end up with a kid who does what you did and worse. Right? But a rough life will make standing up for righteousness difficult at times because you will have to fight that sense that who am I because of what I have done. Don't shrink back from doing right just because you didn't do right before. So, These events set up Absalom's revenge, which leads to a coup and ripping apart David's family and so on. Sin has consequences for everyone, but when you're king of Israel, sin has consequences for an entire nation. All right, let's go to prayer and then Q&A if you have time. Heavenly Father, we had a lot to absorb tonight, Father, from your word. I pray that you'll just let that sink in and for those who need to hear one part maybe more than another, Father, bring that to our minds. Help us to see our lives reflected in this text. And help us, Father, to live out what we've learned tonight in some new and better way, as we always desire. Help us be doers of this word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.